Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio. This is your host, Nick Augustine. This show is brought to you by Law Publicist Communications, a full-service public relations agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Denver, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. At Law Publicist Communications, we put you on the map and get people talking about you and your firm. We also offer consulting and traditional practice management, especially attorneys starting law firms and those who find themselves in transition. Today's guest is Chicago private investigator Susan Carlson. She's the principal of Carlson Investigations, an acclaimed agency licensed and recommended by the best attorneys and law firms in Chicago and the Great Lakes region. Susan successfully set for the Illinois State Licensing Exam to receive her Class A private detective license, and in 2004, she opened her own business. The truth is out there, and if you need help finding it, Carlson Investigations can help. A link to their website is www.SusanCarlsonInvestigations.com. One more time, that's Susan Carlson investigations.com. Now, we do have a great show for you this afternoon, and we invite up to uh, callers for their questions to give us a call directly at 917-889-9732. You can then press option one to be placed in the queue. Telephone number again is 917-889-9732. You can also send email directly at nick, N-I-C-K, at A-L-R-P-R-A.com. Again, that's nick at A-L-R-P-R-A.com. Please put law Talk Radio on the subject line. Now, by way of quick disclaimer, this is a general information program. The advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice. The results may vary based on your facts and location. Communication with attorneys on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. Our programming is politically neutral and objective. Your counterpoints to views expressed are always welcomed. Law Talk Radio is produced by Law Publicist Communications, an ALR PRA incorporated agency. And Law Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse all of the opinions expressed by guests. Finally, all callers do remain confidential. All rights to this broadcast are reserved. So, now, by way of subject matter today, Susan Carlson is going to share some tips regarding the attorney-client privilege and the work product doctrine. There are a handful of statutory privileges in line to protect our work for attorney clients, and the case law that has been developed to address the work of private investigators, public relations agents, and other third-party professionals who assist in litigation. So Susan is going to share some pragmatic tips on how we can protect our professional credentials and our work product, and we'll talk a little bit about the difference between attorney-client privilege and the work product doctrine. We'll also chat about uh, different ways that we can think about when to use written versus verbal communication uh, and dig into some case law out there uh, that addresses some of the third-party concerns. So if you follow some of these simple uh, routine steps that we're going to discuss today, uh, you will feel less threatened if you are facing a subpoena for a deposition testimony. So with that, I'd like to introduce Susan. Susan, if you'd like to say hello, I know you've been on the show before, but uh, please uh, share with our audience who you are, uh, where you come from, and uh, why you're on the show today. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for the nice introduction. I think I probably don't have too much to add to that. I have been on the show. I enjoyed it then, and I'm looking forward to discussing this topic with your listeners because I do think it's something uh, very important that uh, some of it, somebody, some people may not even be aware of uh, as to whether or not our product is uh, privileged or not. All right, well, let's dig right into it, and let's first talk about some of the uh, different statutory privileges and what some people might know about that. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's probably the best thing to do is um, start off with what the definition, the legal definition of attorney-client privilege is. And I'm going to, of course, refer to the Black's Law Dictionary on that. And I'm just going to quote it because I think we need to get that, that out of the way. And this, of course, is uh, based on John Henry Wigmore, who is a notable expert, a jurist and, and teacher on the subject. And Black's defines this as attorney-client privilege exists where legal advice of any kind is sought from a professional legal advisor in his capacity. And as such, the communications related to that purpose are made in confidence by the client and are his instance permanently protected from disclosure by counsel or by the legal advisor, except the privilege be waived. So that's, that's really where we start with this, is that the attorney-client privilege is one thing and the work product, and that's defined more as the thoughts and the strategies of the lawyer and who he has hired to work for him. By definition in blacks, again, I would, I would let's start with that, and that is defined as tangible material or its intangible equivalent in written or oral form that either was prepared by or for a lawyer or prepared for litigation, either planned or in progress. And that's where I come in because I, my work, 80% of it is directly with attorneys. And I need to be concerned every step of the way with what I'm doing, what I'm saying, and what I'm writing down. Is this going to be protected by the work pro product? Is it something that we want disclosed? And if not, what do I need to know? And, and what do other third parties, such as accountants, public relations people, uh, but mostly from my point of view, what the investigator needs to know so that we don't get called to testify against, uh, against our own clients, basically. Okay, so the statutory privilege, uh, the attorney-client privilege, who does that cover and who does that not cover again? Well, originally, uh, when the laws were first written, it covered the attorney, and that has morphed through the ages to where now it belongs solely to the client. The client has the privilege and, and can waive it or not and not the attorney. It's the client's privilege to waive. And incidentally, uh, the client does not have to have retained the attorney for this privilege to attach, only has to have sought advice and has reasonable expectation that their conversation is private. If you seek advice, you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to pay the attorney. But if you have a consultation, you seek advice on a matter, that privilege attaches and that attorney is not allowed to disclose that, that uh, conversation. Of course, there are exceptions, which we'll get into, I'm sure. So we are not – so I, I, I noted here on uh, something that I was looking at that this privilege extends to um, attorney clients, but also there's a privilege for clergy, health care, law enforcement people, and uh, some newspaper reporters, but public relations people, accountants, and PIs are not covered, right? That's true, and actually what you're referring to, and I, I don't think I mentioned this to your guests, and it might have been noted in your website, but the, this conversation with you and I was born out of a, an article I wrote, which was published in PI Magazine, and that's a professional magazine that goes out to about 30,000 private investigators across mostly United States, but people have them in other countries as well. And I'm a, a contributing artist, so to speak, author to that, to that publication. And I wrote an article, again, with the audience in mind as being mostly private investigators. And the article is entitled, Attorney-Client Privilege Versus Work Product, What is Privileged and What is Not? 
And I started out my article by, by stating factually that there really are only five legally recognized forms of, of privileged relationships which exist. And it, there, there can be some jurisdictional variances, but basically everybody knows the one attorney-client uh, relationship. That's probably the oldest privileged relationship. There's also clergy parishioner. There's health care provider and patient. There's law enforcement officer and confidential informant. And there's newspaper reporter and his or her source. And technically, those are only the, the only legally defined privileged relationships. Um, spousal privilege is one that does exist in certain jurisdictions, uh, but I, there's a Supreme Court decision that was in the 80s that uh, I believe uh, limited that to only a spouse taking a witness stand. So that, that is even morphed throughout the, the stages. And, and uh, those five that I described to you really are the only privileged uh, relationships, and there is no such thing technically as an investigator-client privilege. Technically, there's no such thing as a, a, a public relations specialist and his client privileged. Um, so you have to be careful, and that, that can be a common mistake that I know investigators make, that we want to give our clients uh, complete confidentiality, and we're bound by ethics to do that. But if we don't protect what it is we're doing and, and write it and, and record it in a certain manner, if we get a subpoena, you know, we're not going to be able to quash that subpoena. We're going to have to go in there and testify to something. So that's what we want to avoid because if we're not working directly for an attorney, and even if we are, there are still steps that we need to make to make sure that our product is privileged. So important to do. So what we're, we're going to do is we're going to uh, talk a little bit more about some general things for the rest of this first segment. Then in our second segment, we'll talk about the Covell. Or is it Covell, can you pronounce that better than I Covell. can? Lewis Covell. Covell. We'll get into that. Covell. Lewis Covell. Covell. Okay. Well, my uh, the hero. Covell <laughs> Lewis Covell's my hero. <laughs> we'll talk about your hero for the second segment and talk about third-party consultants. Um, during, I'm sorry, during the second segment. And then third segment, we'll go through some steps so that people can protect uh, the report. And we're going to be discussing some of the uh, steps that are right there in the article that Susan wrote. So we'll be making some reference to that. And then in our fourth segment, we're going to round out and talk a little bit more about recapping work product doctrine and things you should know. So that is where we're going. We do have a caller on the line that we're going to uh, take that call right after our first break, which comes up in about five minutes. So with our five minutes remaining, in our first segment, Susan, let's talk a little bit about some of the general considerations um, in thinking about uh, protecting our work and protecting communications. And I know that one of the things that you talked about in your article was communicating, when to do things verbally, when to do things um, online. So many of us want to do everything by email today, um, but then if you think about terms of discoverability, um, that might cause us some problems. Yes, and I actually learned that the hard way. One of my very uh, important criminal law attorneys that I work for on a regular basis, I sent him a quick email, this was years ago, just to update him on something, and he immediately called me up, and he was like, you know, rather upset, <laughs> and, and he rightfully should be so, because what he said to me, and it's always stuck in my mind, is never put anything in an email that you don't want to appear on the front page of the Sun-Times. And I was like, whoa, you know, I didn't know that because I, I thought if I'm working for you, it's privileged. And that was the beginning of, of what I learned. And with emails and, and written reports, uh, it's, it's something to be very, very careful about. And in an email, 
if I'm conversing with a lawyer, I, I put in the subtitle of that attorney work product dash strategy, or you can put it the other way around. Because technically the work product applies if it's an extenuation of an attorney's thoughts or strategy, either on a case that exists or in preparation of a case. So if I begin my email laying out that very groundwork that this is to discuss strategy, that we've already discussed his thoughts and process, and this is an extenuation of, of what he or she is, has already uh, purported to me, then that's how I begin an email. And that's how anybody who wants to protect their product should begin that email. What are some and you know other things that you talked about uh, involved uh, phone calls and when to uh, track people down? What's been what's worked well for you to have a phone call, take notes, and then follow it up with email? What what seems to be yeah. the easiest because getting people on the line is not always easy to do. That's really true. And what I try to do if, if I have a relationship with an attorney that I've I've worked for before, I know what he or she prefers, how to communicate, what it is that they want. If it's a new, new attorney, I always ask, how do you want to be informed? Do you want constant emails? Do you want written reports? Do you want a phone call first? I try to get that rapport going because, you know, I'm a freelancer. Let's face it, I'm a subcontractor. I work with a lot of different people. There's different personalities and different ways perhaps that the attorneys have been taught based on where they went to school and how long they've been in business or just what, you know, how they do business. So I always try to establish that up front and, something that I've developed in my own mind and, and it's my mantra and I try to tell this to other people too. If if you're if you're not certain, you know, seriously, when in doubt, don't write it out. Because for an investigator, once you've written something out, once you've taken a report and once you, you write it down, it's subject to discovery. If if I'm called on the stand that opens up anything I've written down. It's no longer privileged. So if it's not going to help my client, I don't want to write it down. And if it's really, you know, the attorneys want to know the good information as well as the bad. They have to know if there's something that's inculpatory that I might find out. Uh, my, my specialty is criminal. You can probably tell from, from what I'm talking about. But if I find out, they want to know the good, the bad, and the ugly. They don't want just the good. But I don't want to write down the bad and the ugly because that's going to come back to bite them. But they're going to want to know it. So that's going to be information I'm going to save for a phone call because they can write it down. They can take notes from my discussion, and their notes are not discoverable. So I'm not going to turn over my notes. I'm not even going to take my notes. I have to have a really good memory because I can go out there for an entire hour with a, with a witness that I'm interviewing, and if that witness, everything they're telling me is bad, I don't want to write it down, but I certainly want to give it to the attorney. So I have a lot of phone calls from my cell phone, and, you know, the minute I pull out of a place, I, I want to get a block away or get somewhere where I'm safe, and then I'll call them up and I'll say, you know, here's what I got, and I hope they're on the other line. If they're not, they know me well enough to know, oh, this is Susan, I better call her back soon, and I don't want to bother him with too many phone calls. But the, certain ones is, is just definitely information that you don't want to write down and have a written record of, of it. Well, I know that um, I know I come out of a different 
you know, not criminal law, but when I was working in family law, everything that we did was put together exhibits and, you know, it was a little bit prior to the age of so much email. But I know now with uh, a lot of people I talk to with e-discovery, there are all sorts of new rules on what's discoverable and what's not and how to access emails. And in the past, where text messages were hard to get, emails were more difficult to get, people are now getting more savvy. And where, you know, so if the time is over when you figure, well, the small offer is not going to go through the extra effort. They don't know how to get the email. Or det- you know, there are consulting firms out there to help them uh, get those things. So, oh, absolutely. I work with several of them. And just because you delete an email doesn't mean it's gone. There are ways to go in and retrieve those. So, again, you know, it's you got to be careful of what you write down because you could send an email to an attorney and it's bad stuff. So you, you be careful how you phrase it and always put in their strategy because then even if they do the they, meaning the other side, if they somehow hire a forensic expert to go in and read it, it's still not usable in court, and no matter how bad it is. If it's cloaked as strategy and a continuation of the attorney's thought processes in preparation for a trial. So just because they can find that thing, on your email doesn't mean it's going to be uh, able to be used. There's actually a case, I believe, in the 80s, um, an attorney and a client were communicating back and forth uh, writing, and somebody, I'm not sure which one it was, threw the documents away in the trash. And that's fair game. If you throw something away in the trash and it's at the curb, um, that's free for people like me to go do a dumpster dive and pick it up, and that's discoverable. So you really do need to protect your your communications, your written communications. And again, just for a final thing before we go to commercial break, when in doubt, don't write it out, right? Yep, absolutely. When in doubt, don't write it out. I was trying to be kind of cute about it, but it really says it all. All right, we'll be right back with Susan Carlson to talk more about all the good things in the world of work product and attorney-client privilege and how you can protect yourself. Our first commercial sponsor is the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Your business may be exposed to liability if your marketing materials and slogans infringe on another's intellectual property. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity but guard against trademark infringement, call the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting www.nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. The law office of Nancy K. Ducharme is there to help you with your advertising copy review. You can get in touch with Nancy today by dialing area code 708-444-7900. Again, that's 708-444-7900. And our second commercial sponsor is Steve Fretzen and Sales Results Incorporated. If you're an attorney who's struggling to develop your book of business, try calling Sales Results. For over six years, have been helping attorneys to double or even triple their books, through their sales results business development coaching programs. Go ahead and give them a call at area code 
847-317-1575. Again, that's 847-317-1575. You can also find Sales Results Incorporated online at www.salesresultsinc. That's salesresultsinc.com. Now we get back to our Law Talk Radio program, and we actually want to take this opportunity also to thank all of our listeners for sharing the shows and episodes that they find in their social media. We know many of you find our shows in Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn feeds and have been so kind as to share those with other people uh, so we can get maximum exposure with all this great information. And uh, great information today is coming again from Susan Carlson. We're talking about uh, the article that she wrote and some of her background and work with uh, protecting your work, and we're talking about the attorney-client privilege, uh, but also we're going to talk a little bit about work product and another doctrine that helps uh, other people, so we're going to bring Susan back here. We're also going to say hi to a caller. Caller, if you could, uh, if you have a question, you can go ahead at this time. Okay, we'll come back to our caller later. Susan, are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay, great. Um, maybe someone was just listening and called in. So let's talk a little bit about our uh, next in this next segment about the Mr. Koval and and the third party consultant privilege. Mr. Koval, I gotta love him. Let me interrupt Mr. Koval for one second because of my train of thought. You asked me right before the break what were some things we could do to protect the work product, and we were talking about emails. Do you want to know what the rest of that is now, or do you do you want to skip to that at the end? Cause uh, let's do that in the third segment where we okay, go through several steps okay. to protect you Mr. and your Mr. Koval. Koval, Louis Koval uh, was a, an accountant. And I, I spoke about this in my article because I, I, I've been heard, hearing about it for years, and everybody, if, if you guys listening are attorneys, everybody knows what the Koval privilege is, or at least you you know what it is, but you may not know how it came about and the extent and how how it applies to anybody that an attorney has working on the case as a third-party consultant. And uh, basically, this Koval privilege was born out of a 1961 U.S. Court of Appeals case for the Second Circuit in New York. And it was handed down uh, as, as it extends to third-party consultants, the U.S. versus Koval he was hired as an accountant. He was a, a former tax uh, IRS agent, and he went into business himself as like a freelance accountant. And he was hired by a law firm out of New York called Cameron and Cameron in their defense of a client named Hoops. And Koval did some work uh, for this case, and Cameron and Cameron referred to the work and uh, the work product. And he was, or Koval was ordered to turn over his information, and some of it was protected. He didn't want it known as it would hurt the client. And so he basically ignored the lower court and said, you know, I'm not going to answer that question. And uh, they, they wanted his information. And he went to jail for a year while his appeal was going up. And uh, he was an accountant. In my article I, I wrote, and the, the editor took it out, but I said uh, something to the effect of whoever said accountants were wimps. Because that man was willing, you know, like, like a, an investigative reporter, you don't give up your sources. He wasn't going to give up his info. He thought it should be protected because it was in preparation for his attorney clients, Cameraman and Cameraman. So he sat in jail for a year while this was hammered out, and he won his case that the, the, the work that he had done was in preparation for a, a case. He was hired as a third-party consultant by an attorney, and uh, that was the beginning of the work product doctrine. So 
So Colville, Louis Colville, he, you know, I tell people he sat in jail so that people like me would not have to. In 1961, that just—I'm surprised that um, that had had people been using third-party consultants a lot before then. Do you know any history when you were looking at that case? You know, I, I think there probably was, and I think people probably folded. And and I don't—I can't say for sure. But this is the first person that stood up and said, "No, I'm not going to turn over my documents," and and that's why you know he was he was jailed for that. Well, it's to his credit, uh, a year sitting in jail has certainly uh, helped you know, a lot of people because a lot of times those cases don't get taken up on appeal and they don't get there if they don't have a... Right, uh, and I, I don't think there was any formal work doctrine for third-party consultants prior to that. I think this is this is what did it. What do we need to know about uh, the Koval case and how it applies to many of us? Well, how it applies to us, and I, I know that that case... Sad as it was for a very long time uh, and went unchallenged, basically, um, until, again, I think this was the late 90s, 1999, uh, when the same court in New York had an issue, which this case was titled U.S. versus Ackert. And Ackert, again, was a third-party consultant that was hired by a law firm, and he had been an investment banker, and he, was, uh, he had been employed by Goldman Sachs. And he approached a company with an idea that he had that would save the company on its income taxes. And the lawyers that were working for that company met with Ackert on numerous occasions, and he gave them his opinions and his strategy to protect this client. Uh, but Ackert was later uh, you know, brought into court and being investigated uh, by the IRS, and he claimed the Koval privilege so that he wouldn't have to testify. And the lower court agreed with that, but that case went up on appeal. Same second court, uh, second circuit, and they reversed the lower court's decision, and uh, you know, stating that the legal privilege is to be extended only for the purpose of third-party consultants, which act to translate or interpret the communications between the attorney and the client. So that case didn't go so well because it wasn't directly for the attorney; he was working more for the client. So what's a practical tip, what's a good way to run everything through the attorney? You know, this is back to some of the tips that we were talking about before. Certainly one of the things that is suggested is when you email your attorney, don't copy anybody else who's who's not an attorney. Uh, whether or not you can copy your own client, you know, it's it's actually left up to interpretation. But you know how you do CC, you know, don't, don't send it to other people because that, that can, in a sense, be giving up your work product. And, it's, again, it's, it's something that I do just to be cautious. There's times when, you obviously, you're going to copy the client, but it's better not to. And you to instruct your client that all information is going to come out of the attorney's office. And they'll constantly be calling me because I'm more accessible. You know, what happened with this? Tell me this. Tell me this. It's really better that it doesn't come from me, that it comes from the attorney. And uh, another thing is obviously I've sort of touched on it, but work directly for the attorney and not for the client. And this would go for accountants or publicists or any other third-party, you know, forensic data providers like we were talking earlier about the people that go in and and get the cell phone data or they get the uh, hard drive data. It's best if you construct a service agreement that spells out the scope and put in there in preparation for litigation. 
if there isn't a case on file yet, write down in preparation for proposed litigation or possible litigation, just so that you spell it out on your retainer agreement and, and have it directly with the attorney. Get paid from the attorney. The client can pay the attorney and the attorney can pay you. This eliminates any interpretation later as to, well, she's not working for the attorney. She's working for the client. You know, work directly with the attorney, get paid from the attorney, have all the information going in and out of the attorney's offices is really the best way. And another obvious thing, and this sometimes people don't understand this, but don't have the attorney examine the witness. If I'm talking to a witness, you know, let me do that because in many jurisdictions, if an attorney formally questions that witness about a prior statement, then that statement is discoverable. And also then the attorney can, you know, be in an unfortunate position of having to appear as a witness, and then they can't be the attorney anymore. Susan, can you talk a little bit about this Calvin Klein case that's cited in your article? Mm-hmm. The Calvin Klein case, which probably is really interest to you, is because it, uh, it really highlighted the presence of a publicist and what is their role, and, and if a client or an attorney hire a publicist is – is that information work product, such as the things that you do. And that came to light, um, I think it was in 2000, and it was called the Calvin Klein Trademark Trust versus Wachner. And that was a, a case where the, the Koval privilege was, was uh, asserted, and uh, it was a publicist who was brought in by Calvin Klein to work on a case where there had been some patent infringements or something about a trademark. Somebody had uh, encroached on their territory. And the, they called in a, a publicist, you know, basically to put some spin on the matter. And it became a big problem because if you're just, if a publicist is just going to spin or call a press conference and contact some press, that's not privileged work product. That's just PR. So that firm brought it to light and, and, it ended up that some of the communications with the the publicist were uh, were deemed privileged and some were not, and that was kind of the first time that I know of that 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 really became a case that was brought to light on work product for a publicist. And then the next one, which was also published, it seems like a lot of New York cases are coming out, but um, that one uh, again where privilege was not deemed possible was Weiland versus Trainer because investigator notes that had been prepared um, weren't weren't given the privilege because they there wasn't an attorney involved. So again, whether you're in a publicist or an attorney, if you're working for an, a, a client, if you're a publicist or a uh, investigator, I mean, if you're working for a client, don't work for the attorney instead and make it to where your information is not just spin, but it's part of the strategy and it's part of furthering the lawyer's thoughts on a case. Well, and here's another thing that I like to add in there is what I uh, talk to people about is where do you really need, as the publicist, where do you, how close to the litigation tent do you need to be? Um, there are maybe some things about the case, and I would say this to the attorney right up front, if it's not going to help me do my job and I don't need to know, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I would rather only know the things that I need to know to do my job the best and 
um, and realize also that while some things may be uh, protected and privileged, you get hired by the law firm, you uh, you know communicate with a lawyer directly, you uh, address all of your communications appropriately. There are still things that are going to be uh, not you know, not protectable. There's still going to be other things that uh, someone with a subpoena who brings you to the table, you're still going to have to turn over. So uh, it's important that I always point out too to people that um, the PR firm may be privileged with some things, but not everything. So you may, you, it's not like you have a blanket protection against inquiry. Well, you, and you're right, and you don't have a blanket protection. And uh, some people will even advise that a company don't use their, their normal publicist that they normally use for press conferences or just, you know, trying to get PR about their company. Bring in a different company, and that will clearly define that. Now, that's not always able to be done. If they, if they want to work with their, their publicist that they already have, if it's possible, bring in a different team within the publicist company. If that's not possible, you know, clearly define it, and like you say, you know, don't tell me your strategy on defense or don't tell me that but if if it does happen there's again certain ways you can even protect that if if you're in a meeting with the lawyer you know that's going to look more like that's part of strategy that's not just spin you're not just doing spin you're part of the strategy so again if you spell that out in your retainer agreement that your purposes is brought in as a publicist in order to further the attorney's theory of the case you're going to be covered Good points, good points. We're going to pause now for our halfway point, uh, another set of commercial sponsors and also our daily legal news, and then we'll be back to talk a little bit more with Susan Carlson and ask about some good uh, points and things that we should uh, make a list of so we try to best protect our, all of our work. So get your pen and paper ready for the next segment. So this is the point in the show, halfway, where we bring you the daily legal news. And this daily legal news, uh, the way I search the news for daily legal news, we believe very strongly in search engine optimization. We usually take the first things we find, but the first thing today was all about the Kardashians being on law of order, and I don't really consider that news. So I'm going to talk about this from the uh, Wall Street Journal. It was on their law blog section, and from today, the title is, Is Roe versus Wade Dead Letter Law? It's written by Ashby Jones, and here's a clip of it. Quote, if there is one Supreme Court case that your average high school student can remember by its name, it's Roe v. Wade. In the 1973 decision, which held that a woman's right to privacy extends to abortion. But is Roe v. Wade still the law of the land? Writing for Slate, Dahlia Litwick says the answer might be no. How's that, you ask? Well, the Supreme Court has not explicitly overturned Roe, but Lithwick's premise derives from the fact that since the start of this year, some 916 measures, quote, seeking to regulate reproductive health, end quote, have been introduced in 49 states, some of which have successfully passed include expansion to the waiting period in South Dakota from 24 to 72 hours, and also a requirement that counseling from a, quote, crisis pregnancy center, unquote, include scientifically flawed data on risk factors. Additionally, writes Lithwick, legislation has inter been introduced in 13 states requiring that a woman have an ultrasound procedure before having an abortion. 
And measures have also been introduced in 17 states, which mimics a Nebraska law banning abortion at 20 weeks. So, again, in the Daily Legal News today, more on uh, inquiry as to uh, Roe versus Wade. You can look up and find more information on that article and other links on the Wall Street Journal under their law blog section. The title, again, is Roe v. Wade, Dead Letter Law. Now, a sponsor message from our third commercial sponsor today. It's Jim Thompson of the Get Clients Now and Midwest Consulting Group. And if you want to get more clients, he's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you can talk to. His name, again, is Jim Thompson, and his program called Get Clients Now will help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is a recurring guest on our Lawyer's Toolbox show regarding attorney marketing, and you can learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group by visiting www.lawyersmarketingresource.com. That's a lawyer's marketingresource.com. You can also check out the testimonials on their site and see what people are saying about Jim Thompson and Midwest Consulting and the Get Clients Now program. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today also by email. Email is J-E-T, that's J-E-T like jet, at midwestconsultants.net. So J-E-T at midwestconsultants.net. Tell him Nick sent you and ask him how he can uh, help you find more clients today. Now as we get back to our programming, we're going to go back to our discussion we're having with Susan Carlson, and we're going to talk a little bit about six steps, um, you know, or some other thoughts that Susan has on how uh, those who are not covered by a statutory privilege can uh, work to protect themselves. So, Susan, take it away. Well, thank you. Again, I think it's a it's a topic that's really important, and in my line of work as an investigator. Uh, oftentimes I want my product to be turned over. So then I'm approaching something from a different standpoint. And say I go for a, a witness interview, and I don't know walking into that interview if this is somebody who's going to be a good witness or a bad witness. So I don't record it. I don't tape record it. I don't write everything down until I, I realize, okay, this is going to be a good witness. So after I do the interview, then I'll say, can I take a statement? And I'll get that statement knowing that I am going to turn it over. I'll write the report knowing that the other side is going to pour over it and scrutinize it to the utmost so it has to be perfect. And um, just as an aside, you can't tape record something without someone's permission. So if I'm going to do a statement, I, I ask for their permission. I get that on recording to where, you know, I ask the name. I said, are you aware that I'm tape recording you now? Do I have your permission to do so? And then you take a, a narrowed-down statement. Most of my clients prefer that they are written statements. So I'll, I'll have them write it, or usually I will write it out and have them sign it. And once you have them sign it, read it over, initial it, that is something that is going to be turned over. So you, you write it that way, and you use it for that purpose. So if you don't want something turned over, you do just the opposite. If you don't want the other side to know what that person told you, don't write it down. Don't have anything written down that they're going to initial or sign. Certainly don't tape record something. Now, I know there are people that will, and then they'll just lose it, or they'll say, oh, I didn't tape record it. But you don't want a record written or tape recorded of something unless you're willing to turn it over to the other side. So that's the obvious thing if you want to protect your your infos, don't write it down and don't record it, and, and don't get called to the stand. 
once I testify, then in most cases my reports are not going to be privileged. I would have to turn them over. So, you know, the, if, a, if a lawyer calls me to testify, it's because he, he wants my stuff entered into evidence. And with my notes, uh, same thing. As, you know, lots of times, and it depends on what kind of school of thought you're from, we can re- destroy notes after we write a written report, and the police do this all the time. If you, if you try to subpoena the notes of a police officer now, good luck. You'll never get them. They're always gone because there could be something in those notes that they didn't want to put into the report. And kind of the same thing kind of goes for me, too. And, and you don't want those notes to be turned over because there might be something in them that's not pertinent to your case. And if you testify, if you're up there on the stand and they, they say to you, you know, what, what did you use to prepare for this? If you, if you say you used your notes, you better turn those notes over. If you say you, you used your statement, you want that. You want that to go in because that's a statement that you, you know is going to help your client. Susan, I have a question about um, the list here. And I, I realize that we have sort of been uh, getting into this list and tips as we've been going on with a subject um, of attorney work product on the strategy memo. Put that language on an email. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I'm going through your list here. And there's quite, uh, one of the points is do not have witnesses sign your notes or reports. What's that all about? Well, again, as it depends on the, the, the kind of school that you're from, um, if I'm taking a really good report from a witness, say a witness says, oh, I saw it was not your client, Johnny, that shot that guy. It was Mary Smith who lives over at such and such. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a written report like that. I'm going to have him sign it. I'm going to have him initial each page. On the end of it, I'm going to say I have read this statement and I understand it to be true and correct and is accurate, and I will testify there too. And I'm going to have him initial everything. And that means that is discoverable. I can't hide that then and say it doesn't exist. So you don't do it. The reverse is true. If you want something to be discoverable, if you've got really good information, if you've got a key piece of evidence, which, you know, I live for those days, believe me. When I go out there and I'm interviewing somebody and, and it's good for my client, my heart starts pumping and I try not to act too excited. But I'll get it down in writing and then I'll have them sign it and initial it up the wazoo and I give it to my attorney client. Actually, I give them a copy and I keep the original for when it's, you know, when it's asked to be turned over. But if you don't want something to be turned over, don't get a record of it, don't have anything signed, don't get a recording, and get out of there. But call your, call your attorney client up and tell them. Say, you know, I got good news and bad news. You know, uh, the good news is that the witness was in and I got the interview. The bad news is your client did it. But I'm not going to write that down, but I'm going to tell them. Right, right. Um, another point that you have on here is do not have the attorney examine the witness. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason for that, again, and you know, I suppose this is jurisdictional. This, this might depend on, on what jurisdiction you're in, but it becomes discoverable then. And you don't want, and, and then that attorney might have to testify. So it's really better if, if the attorney decides, you know, based on my notes, whether or not he's going to call anybody and you know, that's really up for grabs. Some attorneys in this audience might think, well, that's crazy. I want to interview the witness. But if you do, you know, it's really possible. If you're interviewing that witness about a prior statement, uh, then that statement is discoverable. Also, um, I think we covered do not tape record statements because um, 
Let's talk a little. Okay, turning over notes. Uh, what are some good points and rules of thumbs on taking notes, keeping notes, when to turn things over, what to hold on to, what to attach in an email? What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> I keep emphasizing the criminal defense, and I'll just because this is only an hour show and it's not like a three-hour show, um, I'll sort of stick to that. But if if you're taking notes, again, the, the minute you start hearing what this witness is telling you, you're going to decide what you're going to write down. Because if you write it down and then you're called to testify, it's, it's sub, your notes are subject to, to discovery. So you don't want to write something down unless you absolutely have to. Uh, you, you have to, you know, an investigator, a criminal defense investigator in particular, and all of them, I suppose, you have to really have a pretty good memory. And you need to write things down. But again, you don't want to write down something that's really going to hurt your client. You can be cryptic about it. You can write down names and addresses and, and certain pieces of information, but you don't want to write out, yeah, uh, Mary saw Johnny shoot Billy in the alley if your client is, is Johnny. So, so just your, all... your notes, you have to be careful about that. And you can't tape record somebody. I said this before. It's tempting because you're going to think, oh, my God, how am I going to remember all this? It's tempting just to tape record it and pick and choose what you want to do, but you cannot do that. Illinois is considered a, a two-party state, which mean, means really all parties, is that everybody who's, who's in the conversation has to give permission for it. So you don't want to tape anything, even with the permission of your person, unless you're prepared to have that turned over. All right. Um, we're going to pause for our final break and bring some law practice management resources to the table, and then uh, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about wrap-up of work product doctrine, so some final impressions and thoughts. And, Susan, if you have any um, tips that we didn't cover, we can hit those at that time. So this is, again, the point in the show where we bring law practice management resources, and they come from, number one, the ABA Law Bulletin or the ABA Publishing Department, secondly, from Law Bulletin Publishing Company, and third, your very own Law Publicist Communications. First, from ABA Publishing, the title for today is, and we've been reading this title for a few days because we feel that it's very important for people to have, uh, it's called About the Tech Contracts Handbook. Again, About the Tech Contracts Handbook. This practical and accessible reference book and training manual on IT contracts is a clause-by-clause how-to guide on software licenses and technology services agreements, covering the issues at, at stake for offering negotiation tips and sample contract language. Now, this is a good title for both lawyers and business people because it includes contract uh, for, it's also good for contract managers, uh, let's see who else, procurement officers, corporate counsel, and anyone else responsible for contracts. Perhaps most important, this book uses simple, plain English, like a good contract should. So again, uh, not only for lawyers, uh, for anyone who deals with contracts, uh, this is a good resource. So again, from ABA Publishing, it's about the tech contracts handbook. Secondly, from Law Bulletin Publishing Company, when you receive the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, you will receive up-to-date legal news from Chicago and around Illinois. Also, check out the Law Bulletin blog, Attorneys in Transition, which offers advice and tips for those lawyers going through a career transition. It also hosts a monthly career seminar for lawyers in flux in their careers. I am one of the weekly advice columnists published on the Attorneys in Transition site, and I do hope that you stop by, visit, and leave your comments 
content at attorneysintransition.com. Now, from your very own Law Publicist Communications, we ask you a few simple questions. Are your clients and colleagues talking about you? What do they say? Do you need to create a logo or a website or a brand image? Let me ask, do you have time to do all of these? Does your staff... Well, you can hand us the keys or let you help make sense of public relations for law firms and businesses. Law Publicist Communications is a public relations agency serving lawyers and professional service firms. We put you on the map and get people talking about you and your firm. Please visit www.alrpra.com, that's our parent company, for more information, you can also search in Google for Law Publicist Communications and find out more information there as well. Uh, we do have a blog on the site where we do talk about many tips and uh, make sense of public relations for attorneys. And our final uh, final fourth commercial sponsor of the day is our friend credit damage expert, George Finder. Your score and repu- credit score and reputation are valuable assets, and if you suffer damage to your credit score, you should consider your damages at law. Credit damage expert George Finder is an expert who can put an actual dollar amount on damage to your credit score. George is one of the only credit damage experts in the country, and attorneys and plaintiffs who retain his services have earned huge damage awards in various practice areas such as personal injury, employment law, family law, and general civil litigation. By learning to incorporate credit damage questions into your intake process, you and your staff will learn how to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Available nationwide, credit damage expert George Finder is available for consulting on damage to your credit reputation. His website is www.creditdamageexpert.com. Again, that's creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about George Finder and his expert services. A final note before we get back to our final segment here, we want to, again, thank people for sharing our programming, whether you find uh, links to our episodes in Facebook, on a blog, and LinkedIn, or Twitter. Please do share that with other people who you might find uh, appreciate and get some good use out of the programming that we work to bring you. So we're now going to go back to Susan Carlson and talk a little bit more about some final considerations in uh, making sure that we uh, go through our checklist and uh, try to protect all of our, our, our documents and also think a little bit more about work product doctrine. So, Susan, any uh, tips that we might have uh, not hit? Well, one thing I was looking up uh, during the break, the specific case that I got the information about an attorney not uh, speaking to the witness uh, because I thought, let's not do this like a Susan Carlson opinion that came from uh, Monier 35, Illinois, 2nd at 360. And a recap of that uh, states, uh, while counsel's memoranda of his impressions of a prospective witness are protected from disclosure, their verbatim statement of that witness is not protected. Counsel's notes and memoranda of a witness's oral statement are generally considered work product because they necessarily reveal in varying degrees the attorney's mental process in evaluating the communications. But again, if the attorney, uh, the reason I put this in my, in my bullet points is if the attorney is interviewing a, a person about their statement, then that statement is, uh, according to this decision, is, is uh, not protected. So that's, that's where I got that from. And then one more thing about attorney-client privilege. The listeners probably know this, but it's, it sort of uh, bears a bullet point in of itself, is that if, uh, if there's fraud or c- 
crime involved, that privilege is automatically waived by the client who normally has the privilege. If a, if a client or a potential client is telling an attorney something that they've uh, fraud or a crime that they've committed, the attorney can disclose that and should disclose it. It's not a privileged communication. I think that's and, something. Yeah, that, I think I that's think something that, really important that attorneys know. They're also allowed to use, if an attorney is being charged with something, or if, if an ARDC complaint has been filed against them, or if they have to defend themselves in a malpractice case, or even in a fee dispute, that attorney-client privilege is waived just by the by the client bringing forth the complaint. That privilege is out, so they're allowed to defend themselves with with anything they've got. So at that point, but their work product um, and their impressions, um, that that's still protectable, right? Yeah, but I'm talking about how the attorney then is not going to want to protect that. If the attorney is in the unfortunate position of having to defend himself against his own client, um, just the client making the accusation makes all the work product and all the attorney-client privilege able to be disclosed by the attorney if he wants to. Because remember I was saying how the privilege uh, exists with the client and only the client? This is an exception to that, that the attorney can use anything that client has told him against him. Uh, if there's fraud or deception or a crime involved, or if the attorney is defending himself in a fee dispute or a malpractice suit. Right, and the work and the work product, I know a lot of times in firms when the um, – when the files are, okay, let's say a client leaves, it's at the end of representation, um, the client usually wants a copy of their file while they're not getting often the notes uh, and work product of the one counsel um, because they always you know, protect it. A lot of, I, I find that a lot of attorneys will keep the uh, separate files with their notes and impressions. You know, uh, I think that they have to turn that file over to the attorney. I believe that, I mean, to the client, excuse me. I believe that it, it uh, belongs to the client. But I could be wrong about that. I think that's, a, that's an ARDC rule that um, it's the client's property. Now, the attorney can copy it, and I, I could be wrong on this, but again, I do believe that that, that information, that file, belongs to the client. Well, and you bring up a really good uh, point, too. Uh, Melissa Smart from the ARDC has been a guest on our program before, and one of the themes that we talked about was always call and ask the question because, you know, just like I'm talking about people keeping those notes and not turning them to the clients, I know a lot of people who just say, no, the client didn't get that. They didn't, you know, they paid for it. They get the pleadings and this and other things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the and law, laws change and, um, you know, rulings change from uh, you know from policy standpoints and the ARDC may change things so it's always good to do your diligence and look mm -hmm. into it and make sure but again the ARDC go ahead call them if you ask a question or you, you know if if something doesn't pass a sniff test and you are not sure what you should do before you do anything stop and ask questions yeah. um what are some good resources that you can highlight for, uh, you know, I know it's in uh, public relations, we work with and uh, think about the Public Relations Society of America. They have all of our ethics. Um, mm -hmm. Who are some people uh, in your space who might be good uh, referrals if someone has a question? Right, and that's a very good thing to ask, and I'm going to answer that in one second, and I'm going to go back to if a client wants my file, they are entitled to it, but they're not entitled to my sources. In other words, if I'm hired, say, for example, to um, locate a witness 
and I use several databases that are that are proprietary, and I I pay for them. They're entitled to my information, but they're not entitled to know how I got it. So that's a that's a streamlined version of how my notes and my files might differ from an attorney. I have to turn over uh, the information to my client, but I don't necessarily have to share my strategy with them. And in answer to your question, um, just like any good lawyer, a good private investigator is going to belong to various associations. And a particularly good one is the National Association of Legal Investigators. And these are people, uh, also IntelliNet is one that I, I belong to, uh, the World Associated Detectives, um, the National Association of uh, professional process servers. I do a lot of process serving. If we have a question that comes up and we don't know the answer, there there's a group, a support group that we can go to, and there's literally a book uh, written by Kitty Haley, who's also a certified legal investigator like I am, and she wrote a book called The Code of Professional Conduct, Standards and Ethics for the Investigative Profession. And it's on my desk. It should be on everybody's desk who's, a, who's an investigator. We like to call ourselves professional investigators instead of private investigators, although they're, they're the same thing. But we do have a professional code of ethics. And if an attorney has ever hired a, a professional private investigator and they uh, wonder, you know, is this person doing this right? Is, is, uh, is this okay? You can contact any of these organizations and you can run it past them. You can also say, you know, I've used somebody who's in your organization. Is, are there any complaints that you know of? Because we are more self-regulated, uh, although we are also regulated by the Illinois Department of Professional Regulation. Um, but we, we have rules and ethics and codes and things that we have to follow as well, in addition to the laws of the state and the laws of the country. Uh, but an attorney should always check out and, and make sure that an investigator is a member of really a very well-known and standard group of private investigators, not just, you know, the rogue detectives who meet in somebody's basement. Right, very good. Yes, exactly. And whether it's uh, uh, if you're working with, you know, other third-party consultants, again, that we've identified, maybe the publicist, it may also be uh, an accounting professional um, or uh, any other professional. Again, everyone has their own either state or um, non-mandatory association uh, certifications that uh, people go they through. Do. Absolutely. Look for the certifications, like even what we were talking about earlier for forensic document examiners, for computer technicians, even toolmark and ballistics experts, bomb experts. You know, part of my job is always to bring in these third-party experts that we need and there are ways to check them out, too, to see what organizations they're a member of and are they certified. Always look for that certification because that's a step above. It usually requires extra uh, training, extra knowledge, and it usually requires uh, an exam uh, to get the certified legal exam uh, title, or CLI title that I got. There was a three-hour proctored written exam and a, a three-hour oral exam. Oh. So you, if you look for those letters after somebody's name or their certifications, I think that they're they're more accountable, and you always have people you can check them out with. Exactly, I know, especially for um, throwing mediation in there. Um, mm -hmm. As I go through my uh, my mediation training to put that hat on, um, it's you know there, I'd be some surprised how many people are out there attorneys doing mediation who are not certified and yeah. just don't don't even realize that there's a special forty hour. Uh, training course and certification for the process of doing mediation and it's you know I don't 
assume anymore that just because someone says they are what they are that they are certified and are a good person to call. So um, That is so true. You have to check them out because even in this economy, you, you might get a domestic surveillance private investigator who all of a sudden says they're a criminal defense investigator, and somebody can go to jail if they don't know what they're doing. And if somebody wants to hire a publicist who's not a member of the various you know, professional organizations, they could get somebody who could all of a sudden ruin their reputation. And it, you have to check somebody out. Of, you know, same thing with, with lawyers. All of you guys are members of different organizations. You don't want to just cross over just because you want that case. You, you have to study and train and get that certification. It's all about due diligence. And I know that you know due diligence also goes on the behalf of the professionals who you're hiring. Um, mm-hmm. If you are uh, an attorney and you have you're going to hire a, prof- uh, a you know a private investigator um that private investigator is going to hopefully do their diligence on you as well and find out if you have a good track record if there's anything that they should be worried about um you know so <laughs> i suppose in the the day of checking up on people everyone's checking up so yeah final- absolutely i think yeah. another one of my my favorite slogans is when in doubt check them out <laughs> right <laughs> you know. exactly or like Reagan, you know, trust but verify. Um, you know, definitely, you have to be careful of whoever you're doing business with. That goes for any of us that have a specialty or anybody. And uh, we get hired. Actually, my firm gets hired a lot to check out other people for various per- – I mean, classically, if you're going to hire somebody, you know, pre-employment checks. And, you know, did this person really graduate where they said they did? Are they really a member of such and such? Do they have a criminal background? You know, in today's society, we have to check people out. Well, I I wrote my attorneys in transition column last week on uh, the title was Don't Lie on Your Resume. And I got an ABA email that talked about a lawyer in Boston who did go to one school but misrepresented where he went, all these crazy things on the resume. And you would just think that someone who made it through the rest of the hoops is – you know, likely to be a trusted source. And no, just, I think no, there's no, been no. studies, you know, that 95% of the people that put out resumes have a lie on them. And, you know, lots of these degrees are degree mills, just like there's puppy mills, there's degree mills. And you could think something's an accredited college and it's really just you pay to get the degree on the wall. you got to check out everybody because nobody's resume is really truthful. It's so yeah, you get it's so scary. It's like everyone says, well, it's like taxes. Well, you know what? When called on the carpet to uh, defend it, then then you can uh, give your song and dance. That's why I always say it. it's easier just to tell the truth and uh, yeah. spin the tr- spin the truth well. So um, yeah. If, yeah. if you could leave our guests with one final, if you could sum up your whole whole article um, in one sentence, let's have that sentence, and then a way people can get a hold of you. Okay. My article is really basically uh, written for two purposes, and that is to protect the client, you know, with the work product. We want what we do to help our client not hurt them. So look at the various things you can do to protect your, your, your client, and then on the flip side of that, what can you do to protect yourself? And it's, it's really twofold, and, and you don't want to get in trouble with, with anybody. And, again, when in doubt, don't, don't write it out. And my website actually has a copy of this article, and um, you can read it if you go to www.susancarlsoninvestigations.com. 
Okay. All right. Well, Susan, thank you so much for being our guest on this show. And uh, I also want to tell our listeners, if you have more questions about Susan or what she does, you can go back to her. Um, well, actually, go to ALRPRA.com. You can find a list of uh, the Law Talk Radio tab. And it's in October 14th, I think. Um, was the show date. So if you scroll, scroll down, you'll find that and other good guests. So Susan, um, I look forward to having you back the next time as certainly um, in both of our areas, more of this uh, will, you know, we'll see more things. We'll bring updates. Um, I'm, I'm always good for uh, people suggesting good shows to us. So thank you again for your valuable time today, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, we look forward to talking to you again soon. And we also want to take this opportunity to thank our listeners and our guest sponsors today. We had sponsors, number one, Nancy K. Ducharme of the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Secondly, Steve Fretzen and Sales Results Incorporated. Third, Jim Thompson of the Midwest Consulting Group and the Get Clients Now program. And fourth, credit damage expert George Finder. Again, you can find our archive shows on our page for Law Talk Radio at ALRPRA.com. Again, that's the domain for the main law publicist communications uh, website. Also, by way of disclaimer, I want to remind everyone that this is a general information program and the advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary based on facts and location and communication with attorneys on our shows does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. Our programming is always politically neutral and objective. Your counterpoints to views expressed are always welcomed. Law Talk Radio, again, is produced by Law Publicist Communications, an ALRPRA incorporated agency. And we want to also remind you that we do not necessarily endorse all opinions expressed by guests and callers remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved. Now, these Law Talk Radio broadcasts and episodes are programmed to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences the tips, tools, and news that they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers of legal services. With our guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and we thank you for your time.